Welcome to another 4 Minutes of Threads episode. I think I've gained uh, a lot of new subscribers over the past couple of weeks, so let me quickly explain for new listeners what our 4 Minutes of Threads episodes are. Threads is a nuclear war film shown on the BBC in 1984, and I think it is the greatest nuclear war film, the most terrifying, and the one most grounded in facts and hard research. So this is a recurring series where we examine the film four minutes at a time. Examining it uh, not as a film critic, of course, but as someone obsessed with nuclear war. And obsessed with the film. To recap where we are, the nuclear attack has occurred and we are following three strands in the film. The Beckett family, who are middle class and are sheltering in the sturdy basement of their big Victorian villa. The Kemp family, who are working class, and of whom only two members are left, the mum and the dad. Their three children have died. One of them, Michael, is buried beneath rubble in the garden, only his wee trainers poking out. And the other two children have simply vanished. Jimmy was at work and Alison had been sent out to the shops when the bomb dropped. The working class Kemps have no big basement or thick Victorian stone walls to protect them. And so mum and dad are huddled inside a protect and survive recommended inner refuge in their front room. That is, they have unscrewed some doors and got a mattress and some bin bags full of clothes, propped it all against the wall and crawled beneath it. Doesn't do them much good though as their feeble little terraced house has been smashed and Parts of it are open to the sky. The third story strand is the council workers who are in their basement below Sheffield Town Hall, trying to carry out their civil defence work, but they are slowly dying. They are trapped beneath the collapsed town hall, and they are getting slower and weaker and ever more grimy and hopeless and irritable. Our current four-minute segment begins in the basement beneath Sheffield Town Hall. Everything in the scene is grey and murky. The staff, obviously, aren't able to wash. When the basement was being made ready for them before the war, we saw a chemical toilet being hauled inside, but certainly no hint of showering or washing facilities. Larger purpose-built bunkers would have had such Mad luxuries, but remember this isn't a proper bunker, it's just a basement, which they've kitted out with desks, bunk beds, uh, the stinking chemical toilet. They are just not properly kitted out to endure nuclear attack, as we can see. When the staff um, first descended to the basement, they were keen. No doubt some of their keenness came from pure nervous energy, but Certainly they were all go, rushing about with their clipboards, um, togged up in neat and clean suits, making their introductions, sorting out their desks. But now they are a picture of exhausted misery. We see four of them at a messy table, uh, crowded with styrofoam cups, cigarette ends, crumpled papers, some bowls set out to catch water which is dripping through the damaged ceiling. And there's also a biscuit tin. Now, the biscuit tin being there makes me sad. 
as it looks like the kind of big bumper gold tin that you'd get at Christmas. So I associate these big biscuit tins with festivities, with um, crowding round Gran in the kitchen as she peels the cellophane off and hands the box down to us saying, one, you can have one. Don't go mad or you won't want your dinner. So yes, to me, the big gold biscuit tin says party, family, celebration. It says that soon the living room will be crowded with relatives and Uncle Terry, who will have had a few, will soon clear the floor and start singing Delilah. So the gold festive biscuit tin is so horribly out of place in this miserable, filthy basement, which will soon become a tomb, of course. And as for those bowls set out to catch the dripping water, well, we know that any water coming in will be tainted with fallout and will have gathered all the bacteria and filth and unspeakable things that are covering Sheffield above. This uh, deadly water is quietly but relentlessly making its way through the collapsed remains of Sheffield Town Hall down through all the rubble and cracks and dust, past all the decaying corpses, pulling fallout down with it to go plink, plink, plink into a bowl on the desk, right beside the biscuit tin and the clipboards. Adding to the general aura of grime and murk and greyness is cigarettes. Now, I'm not having a go at smokers, I just think it's mad to smoke in a bunker where the air supply is so precious. Although maybe the thinking is, oh well, in for a penny, in for a pound. We're already breathing disgusting polluted air, so a few ciggies won't hurt, and perhaps a cigarette will calm the nerves. And of course, we must remember this is the early 1980s here, when smoking was far more acceptable than it is now. The brand they're smoking is Kent, and the camera seems to linger on the packet as if wanting us to see that it's Kent. Why? Maybe it's because Kent were famous for being one of the first filtered cigarettes, and their slogan was that its cigarettes offered, quote, the greatest health protection in history. Although it was later discovered that the filters in Kent's actually contained asbestos. They sorted this out in the 50s, and the brand entered the UK market in the 70s. I'm looking at old adverts for Kent, and they push their new filter, um, saying things like, quote, Only Kent has the Micronite filter, the filter that takes out even microscopic particles. Other ads uh, refer to the taste of Kent as mild and kind. And there are a lot of women in the ads, perhaps then suggesting this is not a big macho cigarette, but a smooth and mild one. Another ad says their special filter, quote, refines away harsh flavour, refines away hot taste, makes the taste of a cigarette mild and kind. So the smoker in the basement has gone for something smooth and mild, maybe because he knew that uh, down there he wouldn't have access to toothpaste or minty gum or whatever a smoker might use to get a a tough and a more vivid taste away. So maybe that's why it's Kent cigarettes. The more gentle taste, which is perhaps suited for bunker smoking, but also maybe the, the irony of Kent boasting about their filter that takes out even microscopic particles. So the smoker has the security of that filter, 
when all around them is air tainted with fallout. As our sad little group um, huddle round the filthy table, a member of staff in the background is talking to a policeman across the radio. They are both talking, uh, well, not talking, they're shouting, they're arguing about the situation above ground at Mossborough Fire Station. The police are asking across the radio for reinforcements to help them keep a crowd back. They're trying to break into the fire station, uh, presumably to get something which has been stockpiled there. We can assume the fire station has been put to this secondary use as a storage facility because fire engines would have been taken from the usual stations and dispersed elsewhere before the attack. We know this from civil defence planning in real life, but we also actually saw it happen in a quiet, sinister scene earlier in the film where the big engines go lumbering out of their stations, their blue lights flashing, and they go quietly and regretfully, it seems, along the dark streets and out of the city into nowhere. This scene frightens me, but also makes me quite melancholy, as it's like a farewell to the city and its people from those who are supposed to help them and be there for them. We also know that any fire engines which had stayed in their city fire stations would have been very vulnerable to damage from blast as they sit in fire stations behind huge big doors. Of course, you need big wide doors so that the huge big fire engines can quickly swing in and out of the station. But having those big doors cut into the station wall means it has a weak point in terms of blast protection. So if Mossborough Fire Station has been emptied of its usual crew and its engines, but is now being fiercely guarded by desperate police, then that implies that the council are using it for another purpose. And it's probably being used as a storage depot for food, because why else would a desperate crowd be trying to force their way in? Well, the end result of the harassed radio conversation is that the bunker staff will not authorise more men to be sent to guard the fire station. Because, as he says, what's the point? They're all going to die on that patch anyway. So already we are seeing how scarce resources are being very carefully allocated. If you're going to die anyway, then we will not waste anything on you. Whether that's food, uh, police aid or medical help. Everything is now so precious, so scarce, that it will only be spent on the tough, the hardy, the useful. We switch quickly from the angry, tetchy, smoky men in the basement to a very pitiful scene. We are with Mr and Mrs Kemp, the only survivors of the family, both of them lying in their pathetic inner refuge, which they've dutifully built according to government advice. Mr Kemp has been vomiting violently, but wow, he's in far better shape than Mrs Kemp, who has been horribly burned and can do nothing but make feeble little requests to her husband for a drink. I just love Mr Kemp. He is such a trooper. And here he 
gathers his filthy blanket around him and drags himself up and out of the refuge. As he does, uh, Mrs Kemp, who is lying flat, she twists and vomits suddenly onto the carpet. The pain of that, we know that she is horribly burned, so that sudden movement, that wrenching herself around to be sick, must be agony for her. And then even more horror, as Mr Kemp slowly drags himself up and out of the refuge, and as he leaves the frame, he reveals the pillow he's been lying on, and we see that it is spattered with blood. So already the Kemp's are stricken with radiation sickness. Of course, the blood on the pillow could have come from any injury, a standard blast injury, for example, but I don't want to be horrible, but the fact that he's been sitting on that pillow suggests that maybe the blood is coming from perhaps his his rear end, which is a symptom of radiation sickness that you bleed from all orifices. So vomiting and bleeding from the body like that are classic signs of radiation sickness. Hair loss will follow, although Mrs Kemp has lost her hair already by being burned. Here's a clip from the BBC documentary A Guide to Armageddon, directed by Mick Jackson a couple of years before he made Threads, and it tells us of the symptoms of radiation sickness. The radiation from this dust damages and kills living cells. These are some of the symptoms after a large dose, a thousand rads. Within 30 minutes, nausea, tiredness, diarrhea, vomiting. After two weeks, loss of hair. After three weeks, bleeding from the gums and all orifices, skin hemorrhages. Within three months, pain, delirium and probably death. I have a podcast episode, which you'll find back in the archive, called The Smell of Nuclear War. And it's a particularly unpleasant one. But think how it must stink in that cramped refuge they've made. The smell of burned skin, burned hair, blood drying on the pillows, vomit on the carpet. And uh, we can assume, because it comes with both panic and with radiation sickness, Diarrhea. Stuck in such a cramped and smelly place, your instinct is surely fresh air. Go outside. But you can't. Going outside will kill you as the fallout is descending. Mr Kemp goes in search of a glass of water for his wife. He staggers into the kitchen, which is almost completely ruined. Fallen beams, uh, rubble, dust everywhere. He finds the sink and a... spurt of greyish water comes from the tap. He tries to gather it with the first dish you can find, which is, uh, strangely, a colander. Of course, a colander won't hold water. Maybe we're seeing this to show that, well, one, he isn't thinking clearly, and two, it's a prompt to think of happier times. Because at the beginning of the film, we saw Mr Kemp dishing out peas into the colander when he was preparing the family meal. He was dashing around the kitchen, draining the peas, wearing an apron. And as we've discussed in earlier episodes, that may have um, been quite difficult for a working class man used to being the breadwinner, the provider, working in a tough and respectable manual job. But to now, through redundancy, be reduced, uh, and I'm saying reduced with inverted commas around it, to women's work in the kitchen. 
Well, yet again, we see poor Mr Kemp foiled in his role as provider. He can't even get his wife a glass of water. He lowers his head to the filthy sink and he cries. No man can be a provider now to his family. The only provider now is the state. The state who have all the food and all the medical stockpiles. Mr Kemp has lost his role and his status again and again. The scene changes to the Beckett household. They are faring better because they have been protected by their big posh Victorian villa. Remember the writer of the film, Barry Hines, was very concerned with class and so it seems natural that he will portray the middle classes as being able to buy better protection. Of course, they have the same protection as everyone else. You know, the government didn't provide anything. You were left to your own devices. Grab whatever food you can, and here are some instructions for assembling a fallout room. There was no actual help given, or would there would have been no actual help given by the government in the 80s. But the middle class would be starting from a position of strength, because they would, in general, have excess cash to buy supplies and a stronger, bigger home in which to build their refuge and keep their stockpiles. So here come our middle-class Becketts um, emerging from their basement. They climb up the stairs and they have to force the door open because a drift of broken glass and rubble has piled up behind it. They force their way out of the basement and into what we assume is is one of the rooms of the house. But they are not emerging from the basement because they've had the all clear or because it's safe. No, they are coming out of the basement because they are good, attentive citizens who are carefully following the instructions and protect and survive on what to do if a member of your family dies in the shelter. Yep, they have bundled dead granny into a blanket and they are carrying her upstairs in line with this advice. Here's a clip from Protect and Survive on what to do with your dead relatives. If anyone dies while you are kept in your fallout room, move the body to another room in the house. Label the body with name and address and cover it as tightly as possible in polythene, paper, sheets or blankets. Tie a second card to the covering. The radio will advise you what to do about taking the body away for burial. If, however, you have had a body in the house for more than five days, and if it is safe to go outside, then you should bury the body for the time being in a trench or cover it with earth and mark the spot of the burial. Ruth watches her parents struggle upstairs with the corpse. She is excused any heavy lifting, I suppose, as she is pregnant. She watches this horrible process with a blanket held tightly around her nose and mouth. Protecting herself from the smell, or perhaps just trying to cocoon herself generally from all the horror. 
Either way, things just get too much for her and with her parents busy wrapping the corpse in blankets, she slips out of the house and runs away. Her parents call after her, but neither of them actually pursues her. Previously, she'd made a dash for it and her father caught her in the street and brought her back. But not this time. Why not? Are they afraid to go outside because of radiation? And if so, does this fear trump their concern for their daughter? The Kemps weren't constrained by that fear. They both hobbled outside to try and find poor Michael, who was buried under rubble in the garden. Maybe they don't want to leave their home and its stockpiled supplies unguarded because of looters. Maybe Mr Beckett simply makes a choice. Wife or daughter? If I pursue my daughter, then my wife is left alone. Maybe they don't pursue her as you think, well, there's no point. She's an adult and she clearly wants to leave. Let her go. Either way, we had seen the Kemps go outside to claw at rubble to try and save their child, whereas the Becketts, they stay nice and tight indoors when their child leaves. But I don't think the reason for the difference in behaviour is as simple as perhaps Barry Hines wanted to make a point about how the working classes have traditionally stronger bonds and care more, etc., whereas the middle-class Becketts choose to stay to guard their property and their possessions. Threads is simply too good for such a blunt message. I think it's more to do with hopelessness and the simple fact that Ruth is an adult. She has made her choice, let her go. Also, um, whilst we're talking about class and what kind of protection the middle class income and a big Victorian house can buy you, just look at the physical difference between Mr Kemp and Mr Beckett. The difference in the state of their houses is clear, as is the the loss of their various children. Um, But Mr Beckett, he's still dressed in his shirt sleeves, his waistcoat and his tie is still neatly knotted. Whereas Mr. Kemp looks like, well, he looks like he's just survived a nuclear attack. He is filthy and bleeding and vomiting and covered in dust and clutching a filthy blanket around him. Whereas big Mr. Beckett, he looks like all he needs is a cup of tea, a quick wash, and he'd be ready for that important job interview. We're now at Sunday, June 5th which is ten days after the attack. We see some silent scenes of devastation and then hear a voice crackling over the radio. Here's a clip. is giving instructions to local survivors on what to do. If you look back through my podcast archive, you'll find an episode on the BBC, and I think I talk about how survivors of a nuclear war in Britain would be advised to have a battery-powered radio in their fallout room, and they would be advised to switch off to save battery power, 
and to only turn it on, on the hour, every hour, to get a local news report and specific instructions. These local hourly broadcasts would be coming from the tiny BBC studios set up in each regional government bunker. The radio message we hear is giving updates on local radiation levels. They have divided Sheffield into sectors called release bands, and this broadcast tells those in release band A, which takes in the districts of Woodseats, Abbeydale and Doran Totley, it says that they should not stay out of their shelters for more than two hours per day. Those in release band B, which takes in Netheredge and Broomhall, is far closer to the city centre, and so they are not allowed out for more than one hour per day. Now, judging by the map, I would guess that Ruth's family, the Becketts, fall into this one, into release band A. So they are allowed out for an hour, but the Kemp's, well, their area, which has suffered horrendously, doesn't get mentioned in that short clip. And perhaps it doesn't get mentioned because there's hardly anyone left in that area. That might be the reason why, because as the crackling radio voice speaks, we see poor Mr Kemp clambering across the rubble. He has a bowl in his hand and is out searching for water for his wife. He finds a trickle of water running through the rubble, and in his desperation he cups his hand and takes a drink of it. He holds this water in his mouth for about two or three seconds. Then he spits it out in a horrible, spluttering wretch. God knows what horrors are in that water. But he is undaunted. He is still trying to be the provider and the protector of his family. And so he clutches his blanket around him, gathers his bowl and he stumbles on. And that is the end of this four-minute segment. And as always, when doing these episodes, I am glad when we reach the end of the four minutes because threads is hard work, but worth it. If there's anyone out there listening to this who hasn't yet seen it, obviously you know I urge you to watch this film. And if you look back through the archive, you will find uh, an interview with the director, Mick Jackson. And I was so honoured to speak to him. And next week, I am doing a Zoom call with what some people might say is his American counterpart, Nick Meyer, who directed the American nuclear war film The Day After, which came out one year before Threads. So as always, please do subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss that. That should be a good interview. I'm very much looking forward to speaking to Nick Meyer. Remember, you can get access to extra podcast episodes if you join my Patreon You get various uh, nuclear rewards if you sign up to Patreon, one of which is extra bonus episodes. And if you're enjoying this 4 Minutes of Thread series, I have started over the past couple of weeks doing a 4 Minutes of the War game, and that is um, on my Patreon page for subscribers. So please take a look if you're interested at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And let me thank my two most recent patrons, Mark Hurst and Laura Freeman. Thank you both for joining my Patreon and supporting this podcast. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, on Facebook as Nuclear Britain, or on my website, juliemcdowell.com. And I thank you all for listening.